Ezra chapter number 8. We're going to be dealing with verses 1 to uh, 20 this morning. But we'll just read verse 1 and then we'll go to the Lord in prayer. Ezra chapter number 8, verse number 1. These are now the chief of the fathers, and this is the genealogy of them that went up with me from Babylon in the reign of Artaxerxes the king. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you, Lord, for your grace. We thank you, Lord, for your great love for us. Lord, you are an amazing God. We thank you for your mercy that endures forever. Lord, we thank you as we've sung this children's course, but Lord, there is no greater truth than you are a good, good God. And we thank you for that. But Lord, I pray that you would just speak to us this morning and as adults, as believers, about where we stand before you as a good, good God. How do we reflect that in our lives? How do we respond to it in the things that we do, the things that we say, the places we go, the company we keep? Lord, we look to your word and we understand that you're good, but do we truly understand what that means and how it should apply in our lives? Lord, your word isn't simply just history, religious history recorded. It's not just simply there. It's a living word. It's a word that is to pierce our hearts, but also, Lord, to touch our hands and our feet as we would go about your business. Lord, there are many religious books in the world that are dead. But this is a living word, a vital word. An authoritative word. It's your word. So Lord I pray this morning that you would use me. Help me, equip me, enable me. Whatever it is Lord I pray that I wouldn't say anything that I should not. But Lord everything that you would want me to say I say. I pray Lord that your Holy Spirit would move amongst us this morning. To give us ears to hear and hearts to receive what you have for us. And Lord, it's in your precious, holy, soon returning name, we pray. Amen. I'm sure you've heard this phrase before. It's been, this quotation has kind of been kicked about by various political leaders usually, or thinkers of the day, or whoever it may be. But uh, J. Edgar Hoover quoted this, said this, and again, other people had said something similar before. You'll find this throughout history. People have used this same type of concept whenever, whenever saying these things. But he said this. He says, when morals decline and good men do nothing, evil flourishes. A society unwilling to learn from its past is doomed. We must never forget our history. Now, Hoover, of course, is speaking from a, a secular viewpoint. He's got America in view, particularly when, he, when he's saying that. But, you know, and it is true in the secular world. You, you can see that, you know, that if you forget your history, you're doomed to repeat it. Isn't that what they say? And, and that's what we see happening, and on and on it goes. We're even seeing it in the world today that, you know, these nations should look back and see that war never brings anything good. 
Never brings anything good. Never brings anything good. Just death, disease, poverty, recessions. I don't know if you've got the um, update from uh, Moldova, from CMIAID. The knock-on effect is that the countries around Ukraine now are, are, are struggling. The prices have gone up in a place where they cannot afford for prices to go up. They can't afford them where they're at. Never mind any other increase. So the word is true. You know, when good men do nothing, evil will, will flourish. And of course, as I've said, that's true in the secular. But I want to bring it into the, the spiritual and take a kind of application from that. And as we get into Ezra again, it's been a few weeks, um, you know, holidays and all sorts of things like that. But we left Ezra, if you remember, in chapter number 7. And as I said to you, the book of Ezra is, is, is in two parts, really. And chapters 1 to 6 is kind of part 1. And that's the return under Zerubbabel of the remnant back to Jerusalem. They, and they come under uh, Cyrus there. Then in part Two, um, we find the return under Ezra. Ezra hasn't been part of the first return, but the pattern between the two returns are very much the same. It's the kind of theme of our book, Return, Rebuild, Revive. So Zerubbabel's been, he's gone. Between the end of chapter 6 and the start of chapter 7, the events of the book of Esther take place, and the, the great war that goes on there that you see in the film 300 and stuff, uh, is, is taking place in that time period. We pick up again with Ezra and we find that now, under a different king, he has been given the authority to go back. He's been given the decree by the king to go back and to uh, go to Jerusalem. And Ezra, in chapter number 7, if you remember, recognized that the hand of God was upon him. Do you remember that visible yet invisible hand of God's providence upon the people? This was God moving. This is simply not just God's favor, but this is God's intervention. Moving to move his people. To where he wants him to be. And Ezra recognized that it was God's hand. He recognized that it was a hand that enabled. It was a hand that equipped. And ultimately it was a hand that encouraged him. To go back. To make the journey. And it was an arduous journey. Back to Jerusalem. From Babylon. Chapter 8 then brings us to the beginning of those events as Ezra gets mobilized. And particularly we're dealing with uh, Ezra as he gets the band of uh, people before him and he takes stock upon them. He comes to the quick realization that he lacked Levites. Some would say he lacked what he needed most in a way. He lacked spiritual leaders. And that's what Levites were to be. They weren't simply just the priests of the land. They were to be the spiritual leaders of the land. Because they represented God, uh, uh, the people before God. That was their job. And they were uniquely qualified and ordained into that work. And they were to be spiritual leaders. They were to be teachers of the law to the people of the law. They were to teach God to the nation of Israel. So when we think about this and, and this return under Ezra, it's a sad day when Ezra takes stock and he looks around him and he finds there are no teachers of the people. The Levites aren't 
there. Those that understand simply didn't understand. It's a sad day. But those that understand don't understand the need for action and work in the work of God according to the purposes of God under the plans of God. They say there's no new thing under the sun. The more I learn, the more I say yes and amen to that. Yes and amen to it. And the people of Ezra's day knew better, but they didn't do better. They knew better, but they didn't do better. How many of God's people today know better, but don't do better? Nothing new under the sun. So let's pick up in Ezra this morning. We're going to, first of all, deal with those that came. Because there was those that came. We can't overshadow the fact that there was those missing. We're going to see that when we uh, get into the passage. But there were those that were there. There were those that came. And they shouldn't be forgotten. Sometimes, those that are faithful, those that come, are often forgotten when those that are unfaithful turn up because they've been asked to. Churches can often focus on those that are not there rather than those that are there. But there were those that that came. Look at verse 1 of Ezra 8. said, These are now the chief of their fathers, and this is the genealogy of them that went up from me, uh, with me from Babylon in the reign of Artaxerxes the king. So here Ezra says, these are now the chief of the fathers. We've encountered that terminology before. Um, it was a while ago, so you probably don't remember. But again, I've said these are parallel. Part 1 and part 2 of Ezra. Let's go back to the start of part 1 of the book of Ezra. Look at verse 5 of chapter 1. So this is 80 years ago, this return under Zerubbabel. It's 80 years prior to the events of uh, Ezra chapter number 8. It says in verse 5, Then rose up the chief of the fathers of Judah and Benjamin, and the priests and the Levites, with all them whose spirit God had raised, to go up to build the house of the Lord, which is in Jerusalem. So part one of this return to Jerusalem, if you like, we find the chief of the fathers of Judah and Benjamin, and then we find that there are priests and Levites with them. We're going to find that there's no Levites with the group in part two. So fast forward 80 years, uh, go to Ezra chapter 7, verse 13. This is the decree under Artaxerxes. I will make a decree that they of all the people of Israel and of his priests and Levites in my realm, which are minded of their own free will to go up to Jerusalem, go with thee. So this is the decree under the second return here. This is the decree and that's given to Ezra that he can go and give to all those that are in and around the area of Babylon that are of the children of Israel, that the king has said... All the people of Israel and of his priests and his Levites, even the king, heathen though he may be, recognizes, recognizes what the people of understanding should understand. 
that the Levites had a vital role to play. So he, the king, not a man of God, not a man of the, the scriptures, not knowing these things, yet has more understanding than we're going to find the priests and the Levites at the time had who should have known better. And the decree is those that go of their own free will. So when we get to Ezra chapter number 8, we find we're introduced to the chief of the fathers. This is really the, the heads of the families. This is the heads of the households or families. It says in verse 1 that they, they come with Ezra from verses 2 down to verse uh, 14. I'm not going to read them so you can laugh at my Hebrew. You can read them on your own when you get home and we'll have a competition so you get it right. But it gives you the, the, the list of those that, that come of their own free will. They know what they need to do and they do it. Beautiful. Perfect. That's what the Lord wanted. The Lord hadn't said his name in Babylon. The Lord hadn't said in his word, I will put my name on Babylon. No, Babylon in scripture is the opposite of Jerusalem. It's the the anti-type of Jerusalem. You look into pagan religion, you will find that all, all of it comes out of ancient Babylon. All of it. Ancient Babylon was the center of satanic worship. Nimrod was the first organized Satan worshiper. That's why God did what he did in Genesis 11. Babylon is not the place where God put his name. Jerusalem is the place where he put his name. Babylon is not the place that God had promised to give to Israel. Although the priests and the the Levites were doing a work in Babylon, that's not where they were called to be. Good though it may seem, it wasn't the best work. It wasn't the right work because it wasn't God's work. They were to be in Jerusalem and the cities around Jerusalem as prescribed to them as the Levitical order. But these... Verse, eight, or verse 1 of chapter 8. There's no mention of these Levites here. These chiefs of the fathers, those that have gone up, have gone up willingly. And they are setting the example to others. The journey was difficult. It wasn't a two-day journey. It wasn't a journey that was just, uh, you know, skipping all the way. There were dangers along those roads. Life and death. Along those roads. So this wasn't. Oh this is a lot easier down there. Let's go there. These chief of the fathers. That led their households. And led their families. Would have absolutely known. The risks involved. The dangers involved. But yet they were willing to go. And they set the example. And that's what they were to do. Set the example. As heads of their household. They were to lead the way and show the way and go the way. Remember, that's what a good leader does. And these heads of the households were to be leaders. And headship 
throughout Scripture, old and new, is a vital, important truth that God is clear upon. He is clear upon. The head of the house carries responsibilities and accountabilities to lead and exercise authority under God's way, in a godly way. But to be the one who takes the pressures, who heads up the home, who faces the difficult decisions, not alone as a dictator, absolutely not. I'm a complementarian, absolutely, all day long. The home is to be ruled and, 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 and um, administered together. But there has to be headship. The buck has to stop somewhere. And whether we like it or not, men, and I'm talking to men this morning, it stops with you and your home. Whether you like it, whether you avoid it, whether you do it or not, the reality is God will hold you accountable for it. He will. Oh, pastor, you can't say that in this politically correct world. If I worried about politically correct stuff, I don't think I'd be able to say anything in this day and age. I'm not interested in politically correct. I'm interested in what God says. What does God say? Turn to Genesis chapter 18, verse 19. This is what God said of Abraham. Genesis 18, verse 19. Genesis 18, verse 19. This is what God said of Abraham. For I know him, that he will command his children and his household after him, and they shall keep the way of the Lord, to do justice and judgment, that the Lord may bring upon Abraham that which he hath spoken of him. And we know Abraham had his failures. We know Abraham had his ups and downs. But on a general principle, he was a man that led his household and ultimately led them in the things of God. It didn't mean that he didn't fall. But he always came back to his God. The Apostle Paul, when he's writing of the qualities of an overseer in the church, turn to 1 Timothy chapter number 3, verses 4 to 5. These are the qualifications. For those that have leadership in the church. 1 Timothy 3 verses 4 to 5. One that ruleth well his own house, having his children in subjection with all gravity. For if a man not know how to rule his own house, how shall he take care of the church of God? That's a principle for leaders in the church of God. But it's also by application a principle for every man in the house of God. Because every man in the house of God has his own little congregation. At home, those that have families. And it's your job to rule well. What does that mean? What I say goes and nothing else. No, 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 no. That's people taking that out of context and trying to warp it so they can attack God's uh, foundation and blueprint for the home. To rule well is to rule in a godly way. To be loving and compassionate and merciful and humble and meek at times. Keeping our tempers under check. Loving. Sacrificing. For our children. Teaching them the things of God. You know Sunday school? They're right there now. 
Praise God for them. But if they're the ones that are teaching your children about God and nobody else, then shame on you parents. It's not the church's job to teach your children about God, first and foremost. The church picks up the slack. You have your congregation in your homes and you're to teach them and show them what it means to be a believer in the Lord. You're to be a leader in your own homes. And, you know, these are truths. Headship is a truth in Scripture. The greatest headship truth in Scripture is given by Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter number 11. Turn there with me. 1 Corinthians chapter number 11 and verse 3. Paul writes this, But I would have you know that the head of every man is Christ, the head of every woman is the man, and the head of Christ is God. That is the divine order of headship given by God, not to be messed about with by man. Because when man messes about with God's order, chaos ensues. It ensues. Those that have been around long enough to see the generations go by will have seen what happens when you take God's order out of society. It destabilizes society. And society gets worse and worse and worse and worse. And it will do. And is doing. And you've got these politicians saying, we'll just throw money at it, that'll fix it. No, it doesn't. No, it doesn't. More money, more problems. What's happened? We've moved away from the way God has designed it because we don't agree with it. We've made a mess of it. Mess of it. Headship's important. And when we think about these chiefs of the fathers, those that are head of the home and the family in Ezra chapter number 8, they're setting the example. They're going willingly to make the journey to be about God's business. What an example they're setting. They were those of understanding that understood. They understood. wonder how many today are willing to take what they know and apply it in their homes. To be leaders. Good leaders. Godly leaders. Before the Lord. See, it's easier to step out of that. You know, when I was growing up, I thought being a man was literally based on how you could handle yourself. How tough you were, how rough you were, how your reputation was. That was how I grew up. The stronger you were, the bigger physically, the bigger man you were. I've learned by the grace of God and what he's shown me that, that, that strength as a man, to be a man, means willing to be weak at times. To be humble. To be sacrificial. Say, it's not me first. It's them. I've got two children now that are moving. One's a teenager. One's coming in to being a teenager. And me and Claire are at the stage now. Claire more than me. But it's coming because Caden's catching me in size where we're starting to wear their clothes. Because we can't buy clothes for ourselves now. Claire was thrilled to bits to find that her and Caden are the same size in shoes now. 
Addison? Oh, Addison. Kids knew the same size as me. Yes. So yes, her and Addison can share shoes now. But you know, that's sacrifice, isn't it? I can't afford to do this because I've got these two ungrateful little swines that I have to, <laughs> that I have to raise. But that's leadership. It was a family. We try and study the Word of God to get them reading it and, and have devotional time together. And that can be like pulling teeth at times. Reminding them, getting them into it. But it has to be done. It's leadership. Easy thing would be to say, do you know what? Sort out yourself. I'm okay, Jeff. You crack on. You don't want to read your Bible? Go ahead. You don't want to know about God? Go ahead. It's on you. Now, there's a point in my life where I will do that. When I'll say, it's on you. But now, under my leadership and my headship and part of the home that I am spiritually responsible for, I have to do the right thing, even if it's the hard thing. I wonder, this morning, are you a leader in your home? Are you a leader? Or, and man, I'm talking to you this morning, or is it the spouse that does it? Is it your wife that's a spiritual leader in your home? I'm thankful for spiritual women. My goodness me, they've carried the church for so long. But that's not how God designed it. He wants men to step up and women to follow and families to follow after that. Turn quickly with me to Judges chapter number 4. I want to bring you back to uh, the book of Judges. Because I know some will say, well, let's go to the book of Judges. And, you know, there was woman, woman leader there. Deborah, this is the stuff that you'll get thrown at you. And there was. There was. Judges chapter 4. Oh, I'm in Joshua. Hold on. <laughs> Judges chapter 4. That's what happens when you don't wear your glasses. Uh, Judges chapter 4. We'll uh, pick up in chapter number, or verse number 3 of Judges 4. It says, And the children of Israel cried unto the Lord, for he had nine uh, hundred chariots of iron, and twenty years he mightily oppressed the children of Israel. Israel. This is their servitude under Canaan. And Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Labadoth, she judged Israel at that time. So we get to a point in Israel's history where they're being judged. God sends them judges to come in and, and judge over them and to, to lead them. And, and here we find Deborah. But this is not a positive. This is not something to be cheered this is something to be commiserated over. Not because Deborah stepped up, but the fact is the men have not. It is a, an absolute uh, a judgment against the state of the nation that Deborah has to, under God, step up to be a judge over that nation. And, and Deborah knows this. She's not oblivious to this. I'm sure that she was heartbroken over this. Let's read on. Verse 5. And she dwelt under the palm tree of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the Mount Ephraim. And the children of Israel came up to her for judgment. And she sent and called Barak, the son of Abihimaham, out of Kadesh, Naphtali, 
and said unto him, Hath not the Lord God of Israel commanded, saying, Go draw toward Mount Tabor, and take with thee ten thousand men of the children of Naphtali and of the children of Zebulun, and I will draw unto thee, I will draw unto thee to the river Kishon, to Zerah, the captain of Jabin's army with his chariots and his multitude, and I will deliver him into thine hand. So Deborah just repeats what God has saying, what uh, should have been known by Barak and was known. He was a man of understanding that didn't understand. And, and Deborah just raises what God has said. says, God's going to deliver him into your hand. And look at the response from Barak in verse 8. Look how wicked it is. And Barak said unto her, If they will go with me, then I will go. But if you don't go with me, then I'll not go. Weak. That's the state of the nation. That that man who should have led the army said, No, no, I can't go. Come with me, please. Come with me, please. Look at verse 9. This is what Deborah says. And she said, I will surely go with thee, notwithstanding the journey that thou takest shall not be for thine honour. She says, I'll go, but you have to understand, this is not honourable. I'll take the credit for that. It should be you, is what she's saying. You should be doing this. But if you're not willing to, I'll go with you if that's what it takes for the will and work of God to be done. And do you know, folks, that's such a, a, a reflection of the church today. That men are not willing to stand up and lead their homes. They're not willing to be leaders in the church. And it is the wife, the woman, that has to be the spiritual leader in the home. And I'm thankful for that. Because it's good that women want to do that. But it's not good that men are unwilling to do that. That's not how God wanted it to be. And what a poor example Barak set to others. And what a poor example uh, we're setting to others. If we are not willing, if we know the Lord is our Savior, if we understand that He is the sovereign God and His order is given in Scripture, if we're not willing to do that, if we're not willing to apply the understanding that we have, what kind of example do we set for those that come behind us? And what are we going to do? We're going to sit back in 10, 15, 20 years when a lot of ones have grown up and saying, my goodness me, what a state the church is in. Why do they not want to go to church? Why do they not want to be involved in the Lord's work? Why are they not uh, sold out for Christ? Why do they not believe the things that I believe? What's happened to them? A simple answer will be, you've happened to them. If you haven't led them in your home, if you haven't lived your life for the Lord and the things that you understand you haven't shown understanding in then you've set the example and they have taken it and ran with it and they will they will now we don't want to create drones we don't want to just you know, force children into this but we want to teach them and give them the opportunity to stand before the Lord and choose him give them the best the best that we can 
We're to be leaders. But those came, they came, and they came willingly. Secondly, and I'll be a little bit shorter on this, there were those that had to be called. There were those that came, and then there were those that had to be called. Let's get back to Ezra chapter number 8 and uh, verse 15. So Ezra, being the leader that he is, and he was a good leader, he takes stock of who he has, uh, the the band that have come to go back to to Jerusalem. Verse 15, I gathered them together to the river that runneth in Ahava, and there abode we in tents three days, and I viewed the people. He says, I viewed them, that word there, uh, in the Hebrew means to observe with perception and understanding. That's a quality that a good leader should have. You should look out with perception and understanding in your home if you're the leader of it, in churches if you're leaders in the churches. Look out with perception and understanding. See who you have and who you're leading. And Ezra comes to the conclusion very quickly. He says, I viewed the people and the priest and found that were none of the sons of Levi. So there were no Levites there. I can only imagine Ezra's shock at this. Can you imagine? Because Ezra's a man of flesh and blood. And you know, nothing like being on a spiritual high to get deflated by the people of God. He's like, yes, the king has moved. Look at this opportunity that the Lord has brought in front of us. Not that we've had favor with God, but God has intervened in our behalf. How amazing is this door of opportunity? Let's go back to the land in the security of the king, but also in the security of the sovereign Lord who's with me. And he looks and he finds there are those that are willing But those that should have understood best, the Levites, weren't there. They weren't there. No news thing under the sun. Ezra's just facing pastoral problem 101. Here's a great opportunity. The Lord has opened the door for this. Right, people, let's do this. You do the event, whatever it may be. You do the outreach. And the people that should be there, the people that should understand, you're not doing this because you like events. There's not a pastor that I know who just loves doing events for the sake of events. You're doing it for the gospel. You're doing it for the Lord Jesus Christ. You're doing it to reach souls. And you look out to the community, to those you're trying to reach, and you say, right church, let's go. And you look back. And those that understand aren't there. The Levites, as it were, aren't there. Pastors up and down the land faced the same problem that Ezra faced. And in no doubt he looked back there and was frustrated. You know, they say the church isn't in the Old Testament, and I believe that. But every single church behavior is right there. Nothing new under the sun. God's people are the most perplexing people of all. Why? Because we should know better, but we struggle to do better. We are of understanding, yet we don't understand. And I'm sure Ezra was frustrated, disappointed, whatever it may be, angry. Who knows? So, what does he do? He's a good leader. 
Verse 16, Then I sent for Eleazar, for Ariel, for Jeremiah, for Elnathan, for Jareb, for Elnathan, for Nathan, for Zechariah, for Melshanim, chief man, and for Jerob, oh dear, that's a hard one, Jerob, and for Elnathan, man of understanding. What does he do? He gets these, this group together, this uh, little uh, motley group. There's nine chief men, two men of understanding, two teachers. And he sends them, verse 17, And I sent them with commandment unto Ido, the chief at the palace, Casaphia. And I told them what they should say unto Ido and to his brethren, the Nethanims, and the palace of Casaphia that they should bring unto us ministers for the house of our God. So what does Ezra do? He sends for them. He calls them. And he sends this band of eleven, nine chief men and two men of understanding, to Ido, the chief of the, at the place, Casaphia. And, and twice in that verse it says the place. And what the commentators think, and I, I think I agree with them, because it's pictured out as the place, and Ido is the man that they've sent to, and they're looking for Levites particularly, there's a good chance that they've been sent to a place of training for Levites, somewhere where Levites are available. And they go and, and they call for those to come. And, you know, the thing that I thought about when I, when I seen that is, like, here they are, learning about the things of God. Spending our time stuck in the books. But yet the need is on the ground. Doesn't take away that there needs to be time of study. But if it's all study and no application, then how is the work of God getting done? How is our theology anything more but just knowledge? It's understanding. But yet we don't understand. If theology isn't applied, it's understanding without understanding. Do you understand me? So Ezra calls, and there are those that come, verses 18 to 20. We have the arrival of the Levites, verse 18. Just the start of that there, I want you to notice that again, Ezra gives all the glory to God. By the good hand of our God upon us, they brought us a man of understanding of the sons of Malai, the sons of Levi, the sons of Israel, Sherebiah with his sons and his brethren, 18. So there are those that come. And you have to understand that they've heard the call, they've been challenged, and they've stepped up. And they've they've instantaneously said, all right, we'll go, we'll leave it, we'll go. And that's good. And praise God that they did that. Praise God that they answered the call. But the simple truth is that they should have been there to start with. They should have known. They should have known. So, there were those that came, there were those that called. What's the lesson for us this morning as we wrap up? Simply this. New Testament assemblies of God's people worldwide must be about God's work because we should know that's what we should be about. We should come because it's the right thing to do. You can sense Paul's frustration in Romans 12 verse 1 when he says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. It's a reasonable service. And you might say, well, pastor, you know, that's all good preaching. But, but, 
I haven't been called to service in the house of God. I haven't been called like those Israelites of all. Old. I mean, those Levites, they didn't come until they got the call. I haven't had a call. The men of understanding, they came when they were called. And that's what I'm going to do. Unless I get a call to the house of God to serve him, I ain't going to do nothing. Just going to sit here. If that's the way you think this morning, then you've missed it. You've understand him, but you don't understand. You don't understand. You aren't waiting for a call. If you're here this morning, you're born again, you're blood-bought, you're redeemed by the Lamb, you're not waiting for a call. You are the called. <laughs> you are the called. Corporately. All of us. Now I understand that in different areas of ministry. We talk about the call to pastor. The call to children's work or whatever. In a specific sense. Yes. But in a general sense. You are called to be the body of Christ. You are in him. So you're not waiting for something. You are something. You're it. Wear it. Those Levites, they should have known better. They should have known who they were. They should have known what they should have done. And they should have known where they should have been. They had understanding. But for some reason they didn't understand. I wonder is that you this morning? You know these things, but you don't do these things. You have understanding, but you don't understand You are on a mission given by God to take the gospel to a world that is going to hell. You're called to the body, the assembly, to be part of it. You know, I can't speak at the front. Not everybody speaks at the front. There is always work to be done, talents to be used, personalities to be used. Even your presence can be used of God. Our land, unfortunately, is filled with so many that say they understand, but they don't understand. Why is the church in this country in the way it's in? Simply because of that. We've lacked leaders, godly leaders in pulpits, godly leaders in homes, and we're paying the price. We're paying the price. Our job as the body of Christ, folks, is to be about God's work God's way. And we should know that as believers this morning. We are to practice theology. We're to apply it. Applied theology is the only theology that's worth anything. We have to apply it in our lives. If we understand, let's show our understanding. Let's not make excuses. Let's step up, set the example. And others will follow. Let's pray.